Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Annie O'Neill. Annie's a certified grief counselor, spiritual counselor, interfaith minister, and the author of If You Want the Rainbow, Welcome the Rain, a memoir of grief and recovery. Her book looks at the impact of squelched grief and what is possible when grief is honored and transcended. Raised in a family that had no room for grief, Annie drank to cope with many early losses and was only able to begin her healing after she got sober. Years later, doing deep grief work after her husband's death allowed her to discover the joy that is possible when one stays clean and faces her deepest heartbreaks. Today, much of Annie's work is in supporting people whose substance abuse has increased because of painful losses they've experienced and not grieved. Annie's also the creator of the grief recovery model here, which recognizes that grief is inherently a transformative experience. We'll be changed by our losses. It is up to us to choose how we want that change to look. Welcome, Annie. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here with you. Good to have you. Um, we're we're lucky to have met in person at a grief-related um, event. So yes, it's really nice yes. to spend this time because it connects me to um, to that time together we had earlier. So uh, thanks yep, for coming on. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, so where I wanted to start was just, um, you know, you you have had a a long road of of recognized losses. Obviously, all of us have losses all of our lives that we either recognize or mm-hmm. we don't. But it seems to me very large loss uh, came into your world quite young. And I wondered if you'd just mm-hmm. um, tell the story of the different losses that then, I guess we could say, led to you trying to cover up. Yeah, um, that's a big question, but I will do my best with it. I think the one that I really tried to squelch the most was the death of my mother when I was 25 years old. She had been ill um, most of my life. At around 10, she started having a lot of um, convulsions and hospitalizations, and it, it was another 10 years before it was diagnosed that it was lupus that she was suffering from. And there was a lot of um, confusion because of a lack of diagnosis, and and yet there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. It became the norm in our household. And, you know, as a result, I I come from a family that has a lot of alcoholism with it, and and that really is what had me think, hey, it works for these people. Let me try it for myself. And it really, you know. Profound modeling, huh? For a while. What's that? Profound modeling. (laughs) Yeah, you know, while it seems to work until it stops working. Yeah. I was also, though, really um, affected by uh, 
was it it was your cousin's death, wasn't it? When you were four? Yeah, that was the other one that I was going to go to. That was my yeah. very first exposure to, to loss. Um, I was six years old at the time, and he was four. Um, and he was probably my main playmate at that point in time. And uh, my family had gone to our grandparents for um, my cousins. My cousin lived very close to us. And um, my family had gone to our grandmother's for uh, vacation and had gotten a phone call that my cousin had drowned. And um, I still vividly remember the day. I remember that I was in the uh, the cornfields playing hide-and-go-seek, and I remember my aunt coming out and screaming that Robbie's dead and and going to his funeral and, and there just not being any space for me to have any feelings about it, that I was told to be a good little girl because his mother was having such a difficult time. And, uh, you know, when I started to have just a teensy bit of reaction, you know, I got the the quick squeeze of the hand of just reminding that I just needed to just sit there and be quiet and be good. And, you know, that is the message that my, uh, that I had about grief um, up until the time when I did get sober and realized that I, that that wasn't working either. So yeah, those Can are you- the two biggest losses that I would say. And my father died actually right before I got sober. So by the time that I started, that I dealt with his loss, I had had enough exposure to the um, the ongoing pain not dealing with my mother's death caused and that that was a, a real burden that I continued to carry. So my father's initial inclination was not to have a service either and my mother and my sister and I both talked him out of that. So you know, there was a baby step towards some semblance of, of acknowledging grief. Um, but it wasn't until, again, it was only about six months after my dad died that I did get sober and started to really heal from all of those losses and a few others that had already happened, too. Uh, yeah, of course. That That's always fascinating to me when someone who knows that they're dying tells everyone not to not to have a memorial or a funeral or anything. Yeah. Don't do anything about it. It's such a profound yeah. thing to choice to make for the people who are going to outlive you. And it's yeah. always very yeah. interesting to me that someone can think that that relates to them in some way. You know, mm-hmm. on, it's about them, yes, but really it's for the other people. Uh, so I, I've always been fascinated by that that choice. Um, yeah, you know, with in my mother's case, I, I am sad to say, but I really do think it's that she had such low self-regard that she didn't feel worthy of it. And and again, like you said, it's not entirely really about her anyhow. But um, but it does. Um, you know, people were taking time and, and making effort to pay attention to someone who has passed on. And again, I don't feel like she had the space for herself to. to so it was kind of kind of a once she's left this world. Yeah, it was kind of a pay me no mind sort of strategy more than anything. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yep. so then, of course, yep. she was she was exemplifying that for you and your siblings uh, that. Yep that the the good way to be is not to require any notice. Right. Right. Yeah. That's really hard to pull off, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is indeed. I, um, <laughs> I'll tell a story about after she died. This was 15 years after she died. And I, um, it was two months after my husband had died. And I had gone to work with a healer that I had done a lot of, um, a core energetics healer that I had done a lot of work with through the years. I felt very, very pulled to make this appointment. And I could tell it was around grief. And I, of course, assumed it was Brendan because he had just died. I get to the session with the healer, and she says, let whoever spirit wants to come forth, come forth. And I was really surprised that it was my mom's spirit that came forth. It was very clear. And I have often felt strong connections to people on the other side, but my mother is not somebody that I felt that to a great degree with. So I was even more surprised by that. And the healer said to me, um, say what you need to say to her. And the first words that I said were, I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you more. And then I realized that that wasn't fully what I needed to say. So I added, and I'm sorry, you weren't there for me more. Mm. And then what got really clear is, I'm sorry, you weren't there for yourself more. Because that was the essence of her lack of connection in general. And after saying that, which really felt like the truthful statement, I took a moment and then what felt like really came back to me was the message, the only thing that matters is you learn to be there for yourself. And that was, again, 15 years after my mother died. And I think it was the most, um, the biggest lesson that she ever gave me. Um, So, you know, for people who don't feel like healing can happen after their loved one has gone, I say a big resounding, that's not true. You know, that, like I said, so much, so much healing happened in that session. And A, it was unexpected. It wasn't what I thought, what I thought I was going there for. Um, And it truly was, like I said, the, the biggest lesson I think she ever gave me. So what a gift. And also no timeline, because uh, absolutely not. And I, you know, I, I noticed that myself since it's so long. Well, now both my parents have died, too. Uh, my mother died four years ago. My dad died nine years ago. And uh, I continue to feel as if those relationships develop and different things continue to happen within them. Uh, and, of course, my wife, that's more than 20 years ago. Um, yeah. So 23 to be exact, very, very soon. So uh, I, I really resonate with what you're saying that um, what is possible continues to evolve over time. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, I'd like to hear a little bit um, about how it became clear to you, how you came to realize that one, you were going to have to quit drinking and take on that, which is a huge mm-hmm. loss experience as well, actually, a gain and a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, how you re- and how you realized that was going to mean facing up to grief. Can you talk some about how you connected those two things? I don't think I fully realized how much it was going to mean facing up to grief until I actually got sober. I um, I knew that I had used drinking as a strategy to not feel it, and, and yet at 
somehow I was still missing the missing the connection that that would mean feeling it eventually. <laughs> that you would have to feel it then, huh? we do sometimes. <laughs> you thought maybe so something I, um, else would come along that would make it so you wouldn't have to feel it, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, basically, like most people that get into recovery, uh, my life just started to fall apart a little bit. I, I'm very, very, very blessed in that I didn't have to hit a huge, huge, huge bottom. Um, you know, everybody has whatever bottom they have with, with their drinking. And, uh, and mine is my work, which had been really all defining for me at that point in time in my uh, late 20s and early 30s. I worked really, really hard to be a success uh, because I felt so empty on the inside um, that I wanted to, I worked so hard to make sure that the outside at least looked good and that nobody knew what was really going on inside. Um, and, you know, again, it worked for a little while and it stopped working. Um, and the career success started to uh, fade a little bit. You know, the I had, uh, I was a VP at one of New York's hottest ad agencies by the age of 30. And then a couple of years later, I was working, um, you know, as a director of client services for a much smaller agency that nobody heard of and that kind of thing. So um, I couldn't deny it anymore. And then there were a couple of situations that, um, you know, I, um, I could have been seriously injured by putting myself into. And uh, what happened is I started to meet people that were sober and it really did feel like like grace because I just didn't know how other people how people could live their life sober without alcohol that wasn't my experience it wasn't something that I saw and I met this woman that was very dynamic and very um you know very passionate about life and everything and I and she introduced me actually first to a um personal development program called LifeSpring. And as I got to LifeSpring, I met a bunch of people that were sober through 12-step recovery. And what happened is I was in the third level of this personal development program. And I had to turn in a letter that was called a letter of accomplishment for how my life was going to be different 90 days out. And I wrote that I was only going to drink on weekends. I was only going to have two drinks and it was going to be beer or wine only. And the person that I turned it into, who was my small group leader, I had no idea, had uh, over 10 years in recovery. And he asked me if I had a problem, and I said yes. And he asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting, and I was like, if you'll go with me. <laughs> I had actually called AA one other time previously, and the first question was, do you want to go to a meeting? And I was like, no, click. Um, so, you know, being shepherded so there by a, somebody else. You had else, a bit of a um, soft helped, landing in that regard. But I'd love, it's it's getting close to the break. Before I break, I'd love to have you read what then happened in sobriety. Um, the, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because yeah. uh, to me, that's your hard landing in a way, um, but with a lot of support. Absolutely. Yes. In a lot of ways, it, it was. So this actually comes from my book, um, Chapter 13. And I, I wrote, a lot of people talk about a pink cloud when they get sober. It's a time when everything is fresh and new and exciting. For some people, this can go on for months, even well into their second year of sobriety. Not me. Once I had thought out enough and started to chip away at the layers of alcohol that had been my buffer, all the buried grief of my life burst forth as if a fire hydrant, not just a fountain of tears. I cried. 
I cried over Robbie for the first time ever. I cried over the way my beautiful pedigree collie, Barney, had been neglected. I cried even more when I realized that the kids had been, that the kids had been just as neglected. I cried over my Catholic upbringing. I, cl- I cried over abuse in my family. I cried over the way I had treated men and the way I had been treated by men. I cried over the realization that I had been date-raped. I cried over the lack of connection to my family. I cried over my parents being dead. I cried over the relationship I had with them when they were alive and the relationship I didn't have with them. I cried for every reason and for no particular reason. I just cried. These tears, unlike the self-pitying wailing that had earned me the identification as a maudlin drunk from one of my bosses, were healing tears. They rose from my soul and from my broken heart. After each snot-nosed cry, I would feel lighter, sometimes right away, sometimes a few days later, but it always happens. You know, I, what, I, what is fascinating to me there, and I hope we can talk about it, start now, but talk about it after the break more thoroughly, is how we know when the tears are those real tears. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, I, I know what you're talking about, such hugely different tears. But I think sometimes people have a hard time identifying which is which or really embracing tears that heal as opposed to tears mm-hmm. that sort of leak. Uh, can we talk about mm-hmm. that when we come back? Absolutely. Uh so, listeners, you can find my links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. Also, a link right at the top to to um, go to a page of ways to purchase my novel, which just came out, An Ocean Between Them, which deals with um, subjects close to everyone who's listening to this show. And you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all of that. And to find Annie O'Neill, you can go to YourSoulPath.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. 
Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Annie O'Neill about her work with grief and addiction and her book, If You Want the Rainbow, Welcome the Rain. And before the break, Annie, uh, you you read this passage that really described eloquently the the tears that must be shed, the healing tears, mm-hmm. the expression of, of grief and loss that that I think has to be uh, has to be embraced in order to kind of go forward. Um, Absolutely. But you also mentioned those other kind of tears that are sort of you called them maudlin drunk tears, <laughs> basically. And yes, I, I I believe I referred to them as self pitying wailing that had earned this identification wailing. as a maudlin drunk. Yeah. Yes. Um, and given that you work with people um, in, in this area, you know, connecting mm-hmm. um, addiction and grief and how we do innumerable things to cover our grief instead of feeling it, was it difficult for you personally? And do you have thoughts on how people can tell uh, the difference? Because I know that sometimes people just want to walk past all the feelings and, and be happy all the time, you know, that right. sort of pink cloud right. that you're talking about. So how do people actually come to welcome the tears that are necessary and healing and, and positive or productive? And how do they tell the difference? Yeah, I'm going to start with the how do they tell the difference first. And for me, um, a lot of the difference was just in once I got sober, those true deep healing tears were accessible. They were just not accessible to me at all when it was only about, you know, when they were alcohol fueled. So I think that has a lot to do with it. it is how are they coming up? When are they coming up is a big, is the first big part of it as to whether or not, um, you know, there really are the deep heals, healing tears that can get you to the other side. 
And then the other part of it is, you know, are they being honored? Are they being um, given the space that they need? And, you know, most people that I know um, don't choose to deal with their grief entirely alone. Some people I know do. I personally don't recommend it. So I always suggest that people find one or two people that are that feel very, very, very safe to them that can, um, you know, hold the space for those kind of tears that don't have to try to fix them, don't, that don't have to, you know, make them wrong or make them bad or anything, but somebody that can just hold you or just hold space even if you don't want to be physically held um, as the tears are released. And then, you know, as you start to... Um, wind down from a session of like that and I it sounds weird to call it a session but that's really how they've often felt <laughs> a tears it's session really just what's that a tears session yeah tears. very much yeah. so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and then um you know be gentle with oneself coming out of it definitely um you know don't try to rush back into the busyness of the day um you know Take care of physical needs, get water, get food if you need that, walk outside, that kind of thing. But really honor that, you know, something sacred really just happened. And um, and to kind of give yourself credit for having the willingness to go there, too. So it just occurred to me that... Sense. It, it, it just occurred to me that along the side of what we're talking about, we may be... Um, the difference between tears you cover up and you're ashamed of and um, you you want to get away from as quickly as possible and tears that you're welcoming of or loving towards, um, that, that kind of, obviously if someone's only crying when they're drunk or out of it in some way, right. um, they're, they're not wanting that to happen the rest of the time, probably. Right, right. Um, I'm not sure, though, that unfortunately we live in a society where most people tend not to be welcoming and loving towards their tears, even their their deep tears of grief. You know, we're taught to be strong. We're taught to, um, you know, like be strong for the other person. So it takes great courage to find the space to be welcoming and loving towards it. Um, Uh, 100% agree with you, for sure. But these tears you're describing in that passage, uh, certainly you're not uh, emphasizing any sense of shame about the crying. Uh, Oh, not at all. No, 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 no. (laughs) Not about (laughs) it, yeah. Yeah, so I I just wonder if, if that's... If it's less likely to to feel, I'm just playing this out in this moment, to feel shame when you're having that kind of a healing, good, what people call a good cry. Um, that could be. That could be. Worth, worth You know, another thing that I think is important is they they feel physically different to me. You know, like when I have the tears that are um, not the soul tears, I guess I'll refer to them as, it feels like the tears are concentrate, concentrated mostly in my throat and my and my nasal area. 
And when I have what you say, the good cry, it really does feel like my heart, like they're coming from my heart and, uh, and even deeper. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but. No, it does. It does. Your whole yeah. body is kind of engaged in, in the physical act of crying. I remember after my wife yeah. died, I would cry every day, but it didn't feel bad. It just felt yeah. like my body was doing that. <laughs> I don't know exactly how to describe it. It just felt like, oh, this is what my body needs. Uh, and yeah. I actually didn't didn't have um, any sense of conflict about it unless I was supposed to be making dinner and I didn't, you know, my kids needed to eat or something, you know, but that right, was a right. that was just a practical issue. It didn't have to do with the tears so much as the timing. Yep. So. Now you've you've gotten clean and sober. You've you've grieved a lot of losses that happened to you earlier, and kind of, I guess I would almost say you had to catch up with your grief in a sense, or yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, do all the do all the work that you hadn't been able to do at the time, and then mm-hmm. you, and this must have seemed like at first sort of a. Um, uh, a success of all that work, you meet someone that you want to spend your life with. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you talk a bit mm-hmm. about, because at first, of course, um, we know how it comes out. We know he died. We, we know you had to mm-hmm. grieve him as well. But that wasn't true mm-hmm. at the very start. Can you just talk about no. that relationship and how that was a change for you? Give us a little yeah. sense of yeah, it, um, uh, my husband Brendan was also in recovery. I met him in the rooms, as we like to call it. And it was by far and away the healthiest relationship I had ever had. It really was, um, he was the sweetest, gentlest man I think I've ever met in my life. And I was in a space where I could actually appreciate that and let that in. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a, a bit of an untraditional in that at the time I was in advertising and I was a very successful six-figure advertising executive and he was a starving actor and uh, and he was, you know, much more the one that, um, you know, the gentle one, the one that made space. We um, had a friend of his over for dinner one time and Brendan had cooked. I don't cook well at all. And Brendan had cooked and I had refinished the table that we were eating at. So we just got a laugh out of, out of that. Um, and, you, you, you know, were you were gender first, nonconforming in that way, huh? <laughs> what's that? You kind of gender nonconforming in your roles. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Traditional in some ways and not in others. Uh-huh. And after we had been together for he he moved in six months after we met, and he had after we were living together for another six months or so, he started to have a very, very deep ear pain and uh, spent about six weeks, six months trying to figure out what it was. Maybe it was only about four months, but it felt like a lot longer. And finally, it was diagnosed um, after being missed by many, unfortunately, it was diagnosed that he had um, uh, tonsillar cancer. Um, And uh, the first diagnosis that we got was that it was stage two and, you know, he had a 70% chance of survival. We were living together but not married at that time um, 
for the practical reasons that, amazingly enough, my insurance did not have a pre-existing condition. Uh, we got married. Plus, the more important thing is we just absolutely positively knew that we were going to go through this together wherever it took us. You know, we both were very, very clear on that. So um, we got married five days after his diagnosis, and he had gone from... Um, you know, he thought he was going to have to do it on Medicaid and then ended up at Sloan Kettering. And the day of our wedding, um, he went to Sloan Kettering and got the um, further diagnosis that it was actually stage four. So, um, you know, we went into this wedding, I, you know, knowing it was stage four. And um, he was on a protocol for three months. Um, at the end of the three months, they said that they were pretty certain that they had gotten that there might be a little smidge left. Um, and then about two and a half months after that, it was back uh, pretty full force. And he he fought for another year. Um, and he fought hard. You know, in, in retrospect, I don't know that I would ever go through something like that myself or expect or want somebody that I love to fight quite as hard as he did, quite frankly. But um, we were both in that frame at that point in time. And then I that think I write someplace with... in the book that, you know, after 16 months and whatever number of of uh, treatments, he, you know, there was nothing more that he could do. He had gotten... Yeah. Here's uh, the sentence I just found. Uh, then came the critical conversation. There was nothing more that could be done for him at Sloan Kettering, 16 months and three treatments into it, Brendan got his death sentence. Um, and, and of course, because one, one mercy, I guess, weird mercy, but <laughs> still a mercy, um, that, that uh, he was at such a renowned place, because I can mm-hmm. imagine if, if that hadn't been true, it would have been harder to really know that that was the case. I, yeah. I watch people he, go through treatment he had a lot. Fabulous, fabulous care there, and then he, um, we ended up taking him to Calvary, which is a palliative care hospital just for people who have terminal cancer. Um, and because of the complexity of his case, they strongly recommended that we not have him at home. But, uh, but uh, Calvary allowed family members to stay with him. So I basically, I had my little twin roll-up bed, roll-away bed in his room, and I was there everything, every night, but except for three nights, I think, in the three, in the over three months that he was there, and he got also equally fabulous care at Calvary. There, um, you know, those are two hospitals that I sing the praises of a great deal. I'm, I'm going to have you read the, the section of your book about his death, but I want to make the connection that all that practice in accepting, uh, your experience probably did contribute to what that was like for you. I'm, I'm just guessing that, you know, but uh, I know that's true for me, that all the work yes. that I did previous to my wife dying allowed it to be what it was. Um, yeah. But would you, would you share that section of the book? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, and I just, before I get into that, I also want to say that by this time, I had also developed a very, very, very strong spiritual life, um, and that sustained me a great deal, which will come out a little bit in this. But um, So after I had talked to and calmed him somewhat and the nurse had administered med- medication, Brenton fell back asleep. I then went down to the chapel and, sobbing and weeping uncontrollably, asked God to please take him. 
to please release him from the suffering that had become his life. I then went upstairs to write in my journal and settle in for a few hours sleep before awakening just prior to Brendan's next state of agitation. In this bout, shortly after 5 a.m., he was fighting to get out of bed to walk towards the door. As feeble as he was, it was still difficult for me to hold him in place while the nurse came and gave him another shot of medication. Immediately after that, he looked me deeply in the eye, then laid back on his pillow. It took me a few moments to realize that look was the last one he would ever give me. His eyes shut and his breathing slowed dramatically. I held his hand and said, Soupy, my Soupy, I love you so much and I am going to miss you so much, probably more than I can even imagine. But you've suffered enough. It's okay to go. A few tears came out of the corner of his eyes and I wiped them away. I then called his parents to say Brendan's getting ready to go, then went back to holding his hand and channeling Jorah to him as I promised him I would do. I did not know the exact time of Brendan's death, but I do know it was very close to when my watch had stopped 24 hours earlier. I'm not even certain if it was before or after his parents' arrival. His mom thinks he had already gone, but I don't know for his spirit was still definitely there awaiting their arrival, as was spirit with a capital S. I have never in my life been more clear there is something on the other side than I was in the moment of Brendan's passing. In truth, the shadow of death had first appeared the previous Sunday. It was that night I saw Brendan get out of bed, pause at the door, and turn around to wave goodbye to me. This scene startled me awake, only to have me look over to see him sleep and see him sleeping peacefully in his bed. I am certain that was the beginning of his transition out of this world. You know, when I when I read that, when I was reading the book and I read that, it took me directly back, although some details were different, the, it conjured the feeling of my wife's death so deeply. I thank you for that because I actually value that moment in my life beyond many other moments. I mean, it's a profound oh, absolutely. moment, profound, profound moment of comfort, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm older now. I'm facing my own, you know, end of life at some point, not, not too long from now, um, relatively in time. And mm-hmm. the certainty I felt that um, she, she was not, she did not cease. Uh, she left, but she did not cease is very comforting to me. Thank you for taking mm-hmm. me back there. Let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk some more. And listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com or the grief, Good Grief host page. And to find Annie O'Neill, you can go to yoursoulpath.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Annie O'Neill, author of If You Want the Rainbow, Welcome the Rain. And Annie works currently works most primarily with grief and recovery from addiction. Um, and so um, we were talking before the break about about your husband's death and the presence you were able to bring to that experience, which I got the impression sobriety had something to do with that. Your spiritual practices had a lot to do with that. And I would also probably add in your deep love for him because I, at least, at least I know for myself, a lot of things became uh, doable because I was so driven by my love for my wife that I wanted to yeah. do whatever I could. <laughs> A real mission One of the that greatest, way. Uh, yeah. One of the sweetest cards that I received after he died was, was, was from one of his lifelong friends who thanked me for giving him a life of love and a death of peace, which was just sweet. And, uh, and mm-hmm. one of the things that I've often said is it was very clear to me that Brendan and I had a soul contract. And it's a soul contract that I feel like we both fulfilled. And what a huge gift that is, you know. Yeah, to feel, to feel complete. Uh, you know, I used to say to my wife, um, if we went on, it wouldn't be different. It would still be perfect, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that the that the the cutting down of the or feeling that more time would be wonderful. More time would have been wonderful, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have been a different. Um, mm-hmm. a, a different thing we'd we'd be doing 
Right. We'd just be busy right. being with whatever was happening together. Right. So right. Uh, I, I, I got yeah. the feeling the relationship was also that way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, we we had some challenges still in the bereavement group that I was in after Brendan died. Um, one of the other women talked about the fact that they had worked through all of their issues, and she repeated that many times. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, but what came out was the fact that they had never, ever, ever spoken of the fact that he was going to die. And Brendan and I were very, very clear that, you know, we couldn't, fully know what it was like to be in the other shoes, but we completely honored and supported and, you know, gave space for the person to be wherever they needed to be with it. So, you know, I made the statement in the bereavement group that, you know, Brendan and I had plenty of issues left, but we, we knew what we were going through together, you know? Right. Right. I don't, I don't think a good relationship is, necessarily defined by no issues it's kind of how you deal with them for me anyway that's what that's what defines it for me so uh i want to talk a little more directly about what you're doing these days uh Mm -hmm. which is working with grief and recovery pretty directly i could you talk some about what you're doing uh in your work these days that comes out of what you've done in your in your own grieving and and training in grief? Absolutely. So like a lot of the larger aspects of my life, I feel like I kind of backed into this. Um, I wrote this book in 2013. When I first, after Brendan died, I knew that I needed to write it in some way. And I thought it was going to be more a story of just he and I and our relationship. And then as it came clear it came clear that it became a story of of all of the grief that I went through and how was it intermingled with my alcoholism and my recovery. And um, I still didn't think that this was necessarily going to be my work. And a a couple of years ago, I started to work as a chaplain part-time at a hospital that has an inpatient rehab unit. And I, I was already a certified grief counselor by then, so I let them know that. And a couple of the counselors started to call on me to meet with the patients a lot. And again, don't know how I would have missed this, that that this is something that is so common with so many people, as we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, a lot of people turn to all sorts of things. And um, some of the stories that I've heard in terms of people that just make conscious choice that they're just going off on a run after having a loss. You know, um, I've heard stories of somebody who lost a child that wasn't even a day old and like four years ago and, you know, has pretty much tried to stay high the entire time. But around the anniversary is always, um, it gets worse. And this year, the guy actually came in for treatment the week before knowing he wanted to do it differently. So, um, so it's been such an honor to hear, um, you know, other people's stories of grief and use and grief and recovery and to share with them, with them some of the tools that I've found along the way in terms. And basically, it really boils down to, you know, you and I, Cheryl, have talked before about how grief is a transformative experience and so is recovery. So both yes. of them are huge transformative 
things. So I have a website now, in addition to my Your Soul Path website, that's called griefinrecovery.com. And my subtitle on that is An Adventure of the Soul. And as part of that, on October 18th, uh, which is a Thursday evening at 7.30 East Coast time, uh, 4.30 West Coast time, I'll be doing a webinar called Living Happy, Joyous, and Free, Staying Clean, Sober, and Healing from Grief. Um, and uh, your listeners are welcome to to go to the uh, website and get registered for that if it would be helpful to them. And if they're interested in doing so, um, I will also send them a copy of my book as a as a gift and a thank you for joining the webinar. And um, you know, one of the th- we're going to be talking about tools um, where the overlap is between recovery and um, and healing from grief. I often remind people that a lot of the things are the same. It um, it helps to have a, some spiritual perspective in both of those. It helps to have one or two people that you feel really safe with that you can talk to about. It helps to, um, you know, practice getting used to your feelings. And the bottom line really is what we need to do in order to grieve and especially when you're someone who is prone towards addictive tendencies, is learn how to handle big emotions without needing to run away from them, to learn how to sit with them. And the strategies on how you do that vary from person to person, depending upon their inclination. Um, And a lot of times what I do with people is indeed talk about um, what works the most with them. Other things are, I'm a huge believer that we don't tell our stories enough. And in recovery, we tell our stories, but we don't tell our stories in grief. So giving people the space to really talk about all of their losses and, mm-hmm. um, and how do they get clean in their relationships. A lot of times, um, you know, which had been really, really damaged uh, because of their addiction. So that's that's a good chunk of the work that I'm that I do with them. And again, on uh, October 18th, people will get a chance to learn more. It sounds fantastic. I I think you know. Interestingly, I'm I'm very very close to someone who's been in recovery for 38 years. Yes, that's wow. correct. And um, when her father died, she didn't get the kind of support she needed she had to go elsewhere for support around that grief people just wanted her to get over it basically um so i i'm very thrilled that you're out there doing work to connect those two things because that was so difficult for her to because she had her home place she'd been i think uh in the program i don't know 15 or 20 years at that point and it would have made more sense to stay in that environment. Um, but it just didn't. I, and she did go to meetings. She yeah. continued to go to meetings, but it just didn't deal with the grief at all. She needed yeah. to find another yeah. place for that. So I think this is very powerful, and I hope people will take advantage of it. Um, as we near the end, there's a little piece from your book as well that uh, I I really like where it ends up. Could you share that kind of it almost feels like a conclusion, although I don't know if it's the very end of your book. Um, it actually is the beginning of the last chapter. There you go. It's the beginning of the last <laughs> chapter, chapter forty-eight. <laughs> they're, they're short <laughs> chapters. Um, 
So I wrote at the end of that, I have buried my parents, my husband, my in-laws, young cousins, middle-aged friends, and many elderly relatives. I have been through long illnesses with people, and I have received that shocking phone call or visit that someone near and dear to me has unexpectedly left this earth. It seems whenever I feel as though I have faced death, loss, and grief in every way possible, I am shown this is not the case. The challenge in writing a book on the process of grief is that the process never ends. Always life gives us more loss, more death to deal with. Just a month ago, I led a memorial service for a very dear friend of mine who lost a long-standing battle to his disease. A few months before that, my 52-year-old brother was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer already metastasized to his lung, liver, and stomach. Now every other weekend, he wears a fanny pack that carries the chemo that drips into his veins, trying to give him as much time as possible with his wife and five children. Yet despite the ongoing presence of death, I know grief no longer owns me. It does not define my life. It does not constrict my relationships. My past, present, and future all show me this is true. I really and liked I think that, that. The point about it does not define my life and it does not constrict my relationships is a direct addressing of of how grief did own me. It totally defined my life and it totally constricted my relationships until I delved in and, and did the did the work around it, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess the other part, I, I love that line, I know grief no longer owns me. Because, of course, when you're, di- when you're pushing it away, it owns you in the pushing away. Absolutely. It constricts mm-hmm. everything. And so what that made mm-hmm. me think of is, is how much more joyful I became when I learned how to support myself in my pain. Uh, because mm-hmm. constriction kind of works all the way around, doesn't it? <laughs> if yeah. you're constricting I in one often, place, it's hard to open it up somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I have right. often said that Brendan's death taught me firsthand what spiritual teachers are talking about when they say our greatest joys and our greatest sorrows are one and the same. There's such a freedom, isn't there, in yeah. um knowing you can handle whatever whatever it is that comes along. Um, yeah, we're and, always thinking and as of, you said, of the hard stuff, but the, yeah. And as you said, the depth of grief really correlates with the depth of love, and that's where the the joys and the sorrows get inextricably linked. You know, what a what a great place to end for the day. Thanks for being with me, Annie. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And um, folks, to find Annie, you can go to two places, yoursoulpath.com or griefinrecovery.com, and um, check her out. Next week, I'll have Paul Link. His play, Time Flies When You're Alive, was written after the death of his wife from cancer when he ha- had three very small children. Beginning as a one-man show, it was subsequently made into an HBO movie. And I've, I've watched it. It's very, um, very profound. So I'm looking forward to, forward to talking with him. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl, Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.